0: so I would encourage you to open your Bibles there. And as you are doing so, I want to call your attention to something Monty mentioned earlier, and that is the uh, extra surveys that we have in the back there. So when we handed them out, we intended for everybody to get a survey, and not realizing, not uh, picking up on the fact that most families or many families will grab one bulletin for the entire family and thus one survey for the entire family. And so we ended up not getting um, surveys for everybody. We had some people asking for extras. We didn't have extras. Now we're providing extras. So if you would uh, take opportunity not during the service, I remind you again, try to pay attention up here as best you can. and then, uh, But a- after the service is over, it doesn't take too long to go through this, um, probably five minutes, ten minutes at the way outside if you give a lot of attention to it. Uh, but I would encourage you for that. It is important for us to kind of get a... A, a pulse of what's going on in, uh, in people's thinking, etc., I would encourage you as well as you flip that over. Uh, well, you don't have it in your hand, but there's a question, number 17, that says I'm most confused about, and it turns out that was a confusing uh, way to ask that question. We, we don't mean what things are you just wrestling with that you can't get your mind around. We really kind of meant what, what things are uh, you asking questions about right now? What things in your mind would you like clarification on, etc.? It doesn't have to be a uh, soul-searching um, uh, quandary you find yourself in—you just can't grasp this thing, and uh, you know. So, anyway, that's question number seventeen. Um, we wanted to uh, clarify on that and make that available again. That's just out there in the foyer. So, I would encourage you to grab that, fill it out, and then fold it up and stuff it in the offering box this week. Uh, you're uh, got your Bible open there to uh, Genesis chapter 23. And we're just uh, going to try to work through uh, the entire chapter, and actually, we're going to catch a little bit of the chapter before. But I want to read starting in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba. That is, Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we have this opportunity on a Sunday morning, that you have. Commanded us to do so, and you've provided opportunity for us to be able to, and we get to meet together with your word open before us. We have a comfortable space in which to meet, where we are safe. We've been able to join together in, in these next few minutes, and we're grateful that you've given us that opportunity. We recognize that there are Christians in other places who are in dire straits and would love to have this opportunity. We pray, Father, that you would use this time, that your Spirit would minister to your people by means of your word and its proclamation, that your Son would be lifted up that you would be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to start with a couple of questions uh, this morning. And first of all, um, the question that, that sticks in my mind uh, about this passage is what do you want most out of life? What do you want most out of life? Here we're dealing with a passage where we're looking at Sarah's death, and she lived to a ripe old age and died, and um, what did she receive? But the question for you is, what do you want most out of life? Maybe, Maybe that's hard to answer that question in the abstract, but for every parent, every grandparent, it gets a little more pointed when you ask the question, what do you want most for your children to get out of life, for your grandchildren to get out of life? We've been following the life of Abraham for some time, and we remember back in chapter 11 where we first meet Abraham, and we first meet Sarah, called Sarai at the time, and, and we learn about this couple that is called out, uh, from Ur of the Chaldees, and they've, they've, certain promises have been made, and, and they've journeyed far. If you re- recognize, we're in chapter 23, and we started reading about them in chapter 11. So a, a giant chunk, more than half of what we have read so far in Genesis, has been about this couple. They've been central. And, and so the question today, when we look at her death, which is really a question that we look Uh, At any time someone dies, at any funeral, uh, you think about it and uh, usually talk about it. Here is a person whose life has ended. And the things they have sought in this life uh, are no more available to them. Opportunities are gone. And here we have Sarah and opportunity is gone. Her life has ended. What has she received? And that's what we want to look at today. As we've been following the course of Abraham and Sarah, we have, have uh, sometimes looked at them in wonder that they could be uh, so thick-headed, that they wouldn't believe God's promises in certain ways, that they would <clears throat> come up with such wild ideas uh, at certain times for how to solve problems that maybe we wouldn't have thought of, that hopefully we wouldn't have thought of. Right? That would never occur to us to try to solve the problem by... Uh, the ways that they have solved uh, or tried to solve various of their problems. and But we've been reading a, a lot about them. We've been learning a lot about them. We've been reminded multiple times of the promises God has made to them, particularly to Abraham and, and what all is involved there. But we've gotten pretty involved in this family. And here we have the death of one. And I think we have an indication that <clears throat> there's going to be a transition from this couple to the next. It's really a transition from Abraham Abraham kind of, to Isaac, but Isaac isn't really a big part of the story. It's more Abraham through Isaac to Jacob is how the story is going to go. But we see an indicator at the end of chapter 22 that this uh, transition is about to take place where uh, we we have a a statement about what Abraham has heard, reports of Milcah um, has has borne children to your brother Nahor, and then I'm not going to uh, cause laughter by trying to read through some of those names, but we have a, a, a reminder in the story that there, there are other things going on in the place where Abraham came from, and Abraham's family and, and uh, Sarah's family and where they came from, there have been other goings on, and more to the point, that family is growing as well, and most to the point, there has been a daughter born, a granddaughter who has been born in that scenario, and that is Rebecca. And so we are introduced not just to these men whose names we don't normally hear again, uh, but we see in verse 23, uh, Bethuel fathered Rebekah. And so we have, a, we have a flash, as it were, a pause in the story of what we've been looking at with Abraham and Sarah, and we have a, a meanwhile back at the ranch kind of uh, situation going on that there's, the family is continuing and it's growing and it's expanding, and most to the point Rebekah has been born. Why would Rebecca be mentioned in there? She's the only uh, female child mentioned in that whole section. Well, it's because she's going to be a key character. And she's going to be a key character, of course, in the life of Isaac. And we're going to learn that. We're going to pick up that story when we get to chapter 4. But what the author is doing is, is pausing our current story to now begin to reflect on the future generation. What's going to happen? What is God going to do? And when we turn to chapter 23... We see here the death of a princess. Sarah, of course, means princess. We see in 23, one, that she was 127 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah. Now, one, one scholar pointed out, and I've not confirmed this to myself, uh, but one scholar pointed out that this is the only woman in the Bible whose lifespan is given. It's common to find out that so-and-so begat these sons and he lived so many years and he died and all the years of so-and-so were 905 years or 123 or whatever. But this is the only woman. She's very important. She is the princess indeed. So she lives to be 27, and then she dies. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham, very understandably, went in to mourn for Sarah. And to weep for her. So it's a a brief moment. It's a, a little picture that is the conclusion of her life. That she has died. Well, who was she? We we know, we've been reading through Genesis, we've been working through it, that she had a very singular life. That we, we learn about her that. All the way back in chapter 11, one of the first things we find out her name is Sarai, she's married to Abram, and she's barren. Before promises are given, before the storyline of Abraham and Sarah really develops, we see back in chapter 11 that she's barren, and that's going to be a major theme throughout her life. This barren woman. We see that she, along with Abraham, is called out of her homeland to go with him into a land that's initially unknown. And when they get there, it's not really theirs. They're uh, living in tents, and they're traveling hither and yon throughout the land, vagabonds almost. We think about her life, and we remember that not only was she this barren woman who's been called out of a familiar land, but two times, not one, which would be crazy enough, but two times she is trapped in a foreign king's harem because of her husband's fears. Not once, but twice. Twice. I mean, that would be a scandal if it happened once, and it's repeated. She's had a very unusual life. She's had a very unusual life also in the sense that she receives a promise from God that she will have a son, not just a child, but a son, and within a one-year period of time. God makes a promise to her, so she's had a blessed life, she's had a, a unique life, and then a few years after she receives that son, she watches as her husband takes her son away to offer him as a sacrifice. This woman has been through some life. She's been through some difficulties. She's a very unique kind of woman, but she has a very surprising legacy as well, not just, not just this life and all that's gone on in it, but what is her legacy? What do we really remember about her from, from this point on and really from the last couple of chapters on, what we remember about Sarah is not that she's barren, but that she is the mother of a nation. She who was barren for the whole story nearly winds up being the mother, the princess of an entire nation that will come from her. She's a very unique person. And, and uh, Abraham goes in to her to mourn for her, to weep for her, to mark her passing. Just as a, a sideline, it's important for us to weep and to mourn those who die, even those who die in faith. We don't do ourselves, we don't do the family, we don't do uh, the church. We don't do anybody any favors when we try to keep a stiff upper lip through death. It's appropriate to mourn and to weep, and we ought to do that. So we see the death of a princess at the beginning of the story, and and then the next several verses, actually 3 through 16, you have this uh, bartering for a burial place. It's a very unusual story, and uh, I have thought about it over the years and wondered what is going on in this story, tried to understand uh, what's happening here. But uh, in order for us to look at it, I want to read 3 through 16. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So first of all, I want to notice, before we continue on, the the partner in the haggling. With whom is he haggling? The haggling hasn't started yet, but it's about to. And and with whom is he haggling? There there are a couple of things that we notice here. First of all, he's talking to, he's, he's in the land of Canaan. That's where Sarah died, and the story, by the way, ends with another reference to the land of Canaan. That tells us that in the author's mind, it's important that this is happening in the land of Canaan. So they're in the land of Canaan, and who is he talking with? Who is he going to be bartering with? Well, it's the Hittites. There are people living in that region called Hittites, and there seem to be lots of them. They seem to be the dominant population there in that area, or at least the ones that he's interacting with, and so He's he's interacting with these Hittites, and we're going to learn the name of one of them in particular later on. But he says, give me, uh, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner among you, give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury the dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham, hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. So the the initial offer is very interesting. The initial offer, he says, give me a place. And they say, okay, we'll give you any place. No one's going to withhold you a place to bury your dead. We'll we'll be happy to give you the best, the choicest of our uh, tombs to bury your dead in. But Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar. So he identifies an individual. Then he says, in verse 9, that, we may, that, that he may give me the cave of Mach, Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. So he, he says, well... Um, if you're serious about this, let me talk to Ephron. I have a particular place in mind, but let's not just do a deal where you give it to me. I am offering full price. I want to pay for this. Now Ephron, verse 10, was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the gate of his city. Verse 11, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field. And I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people I give it to you. Bury your dead. So Ephron counters. See why this is a very unusual bartering? When you were buying the house you live in or if you were buying a piece of property and someone says, here, let me give it to you, you probably say, where do I sign? <laughs> and he says, no, I want to pay full price. Well, then the counter offer is, no, 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 no. let me give it to you. I'm serious. For free. Let me give it to you. Verse 12 Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land. And he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. So finally, we have a price. Abraham's been offering to pay the price. Uh, Ephron has been saying, no, it's free. Uh, and finally, he comes up and says, here's, this, uh, here's the price, my, my opening bid. And Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. That's strange. That's odd, the way that haggling went down. And I don't know... Um, exactly how to understand all of the ins and outs of it. But it seems to go in reverse, doesn't it? If you're buying something, you start off as the potential buyer lowballing. The person selling starts off with a high offer. Oh, well, this thing's worth, you know, 400 shekels of silver. And Abraham says, no, nah, it's only worth 200. Not, it's not even worth 200, right? That's normally the way bartering goes. By the way, I hate bartering. All the places I've lived and all the, all the odd uh, markets I have shopped in, I just hate it. Just tell me a good price. If I like it, I'll buy it. If I don't, I won't. I don't like to haggle. But this is the culture, right? But here you've got it exactly in the reverse. The seller is saying, no, it's free. And the, buy, the buyer is saying, no, I want to buy it. I want to pay money. I want to give good money. I will give top dollar. And the seller is saying, you're not listening. <laughs> it's free. There are no dollars involved, right? And that's not the way it goes down. And I think what's going on and and, uh, scholars are not entirely in agreement on this but it seems like that the Hittites are the people of the land, remember? This is their country. This is their place. This region is theirs and Abraham, it has already been mentioned, is an outsider and Abraham leads with that. I'm a sojourner. I know I'm new to town. I know I'm not a Phalanite, Right? So he's He's new to town. He recognizes that. And it seems like the Hittites want to retain control of that land and not sell any piece of it, like subdividing. They're willing to let him bury his dead. Here, we'll give you a tomb. You can bury it right in there. That doesn't mean he has ownership of any kind of property. It's just a place to bury his dead. And that's what the Hittites want. The Hittites want this to remain in a situation where they're in control where this is their place, and they've not subdivided any of their property. Abraham, on the other hand, is motivated very differently. Abraham is seeking a legal title to a piece of land. He wants to own that. He wants just a, just a corner, just one f- one field. Not even, he doesn't even start with the field, the cave, the, this place. There's one little place I've got in mind. Remember, it's right at the end of his field. I just want that place. That's all I want. That's all he's really after. He wants a place to be able to bury his dead. He wants a place where he has the title. Because when you have the title, you can't be bumped off the land. You can't be pushed out. this naturally causes me to think of our time when we were uh, missionaries in Russia and we always rented homes. We never bought. It was a very complicated, long process to buy anything and we didn't have money to buy anyway. So we would just rent. Well, that's great, you know, because it's cheaper this month than than buying and it's less effort this month than buying. And so you kind of live that way. But the problem is that you find yourself at the mercy of the landlords. You find yourself at... Uh, at the mercy, really, of of the whole system because you don't have a permanent place that is yours. You're just a renter, right? And so uh, we would find that our rent would be raised, you know, according to inflation and things like that. I get it, but sometimes it was just because they knew we were Americans and had more money. So they'd raise the rent, you know, this sort of uh, taking advantage of the fact that we were Americans. So it was a tough spot, but every missionary deals with it. Except we had friends who decided they were going to go through the extensive process, the very expensive process of buying their own home that would be theirs, that they would own. If they wanted to make changes on it, they could. If they wanted to, it's theirs. Where do you live? We live there because that is our house. We paid for it. We're not just renters. And it gave them a greater degree of freedom. It gave them a a permanent base of operations, a place from which to do ministry, uh, a house that their kids could live in from year to year. That's a little bit what Abraham is looking for. He's looking for a base. He's looking for a place that belongs to him. After all, he's been promised the whole land, but he's still a sojourner in it. And he's looking for a much more permanent arrangement, not just a place to, to, to bury his wife but a place that he can that that he can that he can consider his, that belongs to his family. And so the purpose of the haggling going on here is that the, the Hittites want him to remain transient. And Abraham wants to become more and more permanent in the same location. He wants a place not just to bury his wife, but Abraham's old as the hills. He's going to have to be buried soon too. Where is he going to be buried? He needs to be buried in the land. He's going to have children. He's already got Isaac, and, uh, and uh, presumably there will be grandchildren that come along, according to the promise of God, and they'll need a place to be buried too. And so he's thinking much longer term. He's thinking about future generations. And so that haggling, you might understand that haggling process differently, but, but I think that's, the, that's the, the sum total of it. It's a competition. Whose land is this? The Hittites say, well, you can bury Sarah right over there, but it's still my land. I'm happy to loan you my burial place. I'm happy to let you bury her on my land. And Abraham is looking for something much more permanent. Well, what's the significance of the burial place? We see the deed uh, of, of the burial place, what actually tran- uh, the transaction and, and what all is involved. What is the, the description of the piece of property? If you have, a, if you have a, a, a title to a piece of property, you've got the deed. You have a description of, of, of the boundary markers and what's contained in it and, and that kind of stuff. And that's what we have in verses 17 and 18. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it, so the field cave that was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. So first of all, we have a description of the property, which is what you would expect when you buy a piece of property. You need to know where the boundary markers are. Well, he has a boundary markers of his property, and it's not just the place, the burial place at the end of the field, but it's the field also, and trees involved. This whole area is his. That's a, a part of the deed, and that's, that's the first part. of it. But did you see what happened there at the end? Abraham um, takes possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of the city. This is an ironclad deal. This is very public. This is the equivalent of like a notary public. This, is, this, is, this has been done in the presence of all and not just in the presence of his own people. It's not like Abraham showed up with all of his family and invited Ephron to come into his house and they did a deal inside the house and all the witnesses are Abraham's family. No, it's exactly the opposite. Abraham is by himself bowing down before the people, the people of the land, the Hittites, and he does the deed that way. So that the agreement is, it is ironclad. It's public. Everybody knows it. Not only that, but he paid top dollar. He didn't even counter and say, 400? Are you kidding me? And he said, 400? Okay. He didn't haggle. There's no way he manipulated. He couldn't have tricked Ephron when he was uh, making this deal. And so, it's an ironclad deal. Everybody knows it. It's his Property belongs to him. And we see in verses 19 and 20, it's going to serve future generations uh, as well. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. This is his His property, he buries his wife there, and we see in uh, chapter 25 and verse 10, Abraham himself is going to be buried in the same place. We see in Genesis 49, 29, and 30 that Isaac and Rebekah will be buried in the same place. Jacob and Leah will be buried in the same place. This is the family burial site. This is his property into future generations and really even into the modern era, this This little burial site in Machpelah, east of Mamre at Hebron, was one of the most cherished sites in all of Judaism. Of course, now there's a mosque that sits on it. But it's it's a holy place because it was the, the burial place of the princess. So I have a few implications and then some applications that we want to make. first implication is that we're seeing more and more hints of the land promise beginning to be fulfilled. Like a down payment of the land promise. The land promise made all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7. To your offspring I will give this land, God said. That's a great expectation. This whole land. It's repeated in chapter 13. All the land that you see, God says, I will give to you and to your offspring forever, speaking to Abraham. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And The same thing in chapter 15. God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And yet, what did, what did he possess? He was given permission to live in certain places. He had neighbors with whom he was friendly. He had a well he got to use down in Beersheba. But he didn't own anything. Later in chapter 15, verse 18 through 21. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Why is it important that he's haggling with, dealing with, buying the first piece of land from a Hittite? The word Hittite occurs in this passage like seven or eight times. It's, a, it's an important theme. It's because we're being told this is a foretaste. This is a down payment of that promise being Fulfilled where the land of the Hittites now belongs to Abraham. At least this one little corner. In chapter 17 and verse 8, he says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. Why was it important? Why was it important that this took place in the land of Canaan? We see, uh, we see literary device here being used of us being reminded that not only are the Hittites in the the discussion all the way through, but we have also the land of Canaan as the bookends for this chapter, reminding us this is happening in the land of Canaan. Have we had a promise about the land of Canaan? Yes, we did in 17 and verse 8. I will give to you and to your offspring all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. The land of Canaan, the Hittites, it's now beginning to take place. Just a small, just a small foretaste, just a small down payment. Not the whole land, the description of the entire land has been given. But at least Abraham has a deed to this one little corner, this one little field, with the burial place at the end of it, with the trees and the whole area around it belongs to him. One little speck in the land, but it belongs to to him. And so I think that's one of the implications of this chapter is not just the passing of Sarah, the, the, the princess, not just the passing of Sarah, who's who's the mother of the people, and she's had such a life, and it's a it's a it's a it's a very painful situation for Abraham to go through. But in the midst of that, we see the foretaste of the promise being fulfilled. But I think I think there's a second implication in our passage here. And that's that God's promises don't end in a tomb. Abraham and Sarah, we learn from the New Testament, had learned to look beyond this life alone for God to fulfill his promises. I'm sure as they were getting up in years, we saw it already that they were dealing with the struggle of we're we're both too old to have kids and yet God has promised us a son. They're wrestling with that question. How could God fulfill His promise to such an old couple? Well, that does get fulfilled and fulfilled miraculously. But then later in life as they're getting older and older, Isaac is 37 when his mom dies. They've gotten old and they're remembering all the promises. And they're saying, well, we've got a son. What about the rest of the promises? I mean, we're, we're kind of running out of time to inherit this land. It's a big land, and Abraham's an old man. The New Testament tells us that they had begun to look beyond this life for the fulfillment of those promises, that Abraham was beginning to to suspect, to understand that he wouldn't be the one to inherit the deed for the entirety of the land. Hebrews chapter 11 reflects uh, for a good portion of that chapter on the life of Abraham and Sarah. And we read in summary, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 8, a summary of the life of Abraham and the journey of faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Here he was living in tents, which by definition do not have foundations. They're they're movable. That's the point. But he's looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This is not a regular city. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city. What city were they ultimately expecting? What, what inheritance were they ultimately expecting? They, they understood the physical promise. They understood the land, and they got the down payment of the land here, but, but they had begun to look beyond. They had begun to understand that God was preparing for them a place with Him in heaven. That's implicit in this chapter here. That's implicit in this story. Here, Sarah died, but she didn't die in misery. She didn't die with her faith crushed. She didn't die disappointed. She died in expectation of something greater being given. According to the author, to the Hebrews, God's promises don't end in a tomb and, of course, that has relevance for us as we think back to the first century, we think into the New Testament, and we think about the disciples and, and how the disciples had, had been living with Jesus these three and a half years, and they had such expectation about the kingdom He was going to bring and about what all was going to be accomplished, and, then, and, and the victory He's going to bring, and they haggle amongst themselves who's going to be in the, in the position of priority and, and prominence in this kingdom, and on and on and on. And then Jesus is arrested And then Jesus is crucified, and he dies, and he's buried. And for the next three days, the disciples were in a very similar place to you and me now. They had seen him die. Perhaps they had wrestled with the idea though, of course, they didn't understand what it meant that he said he would rise again. But they were looking at his death and they were saying, did he fail? The hope that we had that was invested in him, has it come to an end? I mean, he's dead after all. Did did their hope die and end up in the tomb, did God's promises that they were certain were wrapped up in Him end up in the tomb with Him? Well, for three days, they had to wrestle with that. And you and I, in our day, wrestle with that too, don't we? I mean, we've heard stories. We've read the accounts from the New Testament. We, we can see evidence for the resurrection, etc. But right now, for you and me, it's a matter of faith, isn't it? Because we've not seen his resurrected body. For you and me, it's an issue of faith. Just like for the disciples in in, in those those hours when he was in the tomb. It was a matter of faith. But folks, the, the promises of God don't end up in a tomb. They don't end there. They went to the tomb, didn't they? But on the third day, God did raise him from the dead. God did raise him to new life and he went and talked to the disciples. He went and talked to and appeared to over 500 people so that it was, a, it was no longer an issue of faith for the disciples. They saw him. For the disciples, for those select few who got to see him, for those, for those 500 or so, it now was an issue of memory. And not of faith in the same way. Because they saw Him. They talked to Him. They ate with Him. They touched Him. They knew He was alive. Those are the facts. But what do they mean? What does it mean that that Christ died and was raised again. Is that curious history? Is that uh, miraculous and, and therefore wonderful? What does it mean for you and me that Christ died? Well, the, the epistles explain for us very clearly that Christ's life that he lived not only was a fulfillment and a gathering up of these promises, but it was a life of obedience to God. And that's important for you and me because we have not been obedient to God. It's important for you and me because, because we have disobeyed God more times than we know and we stand guilty before Him in ourselves. And so He lives a life of obedience and then He dies. The New Testament tells us He does so in our place as a substitute as we looked in Genesis chapter 22, as a substitute for us. Him dying for my guilt, to pay the penalty for my sin. And then God raised him on the third day, demonstrating that that sacrifice was acceptable to him. All the sin that had been piled on Christ had clearly been paid for because God raised him from the dead. He he, he no longer bears that sin guilt. We have a statement by God that The payment has been made. The payment has been accepted. New Testament goes on to tell us that if you and I will look to Christ, if if we will trust in Him and what He has done and rest in what He has accomplished, we too will have life. The life that He deserved will become ours. Eternal life, peace with God. And so, for us, God's promises don't end in a tomb either what's our application first of all if you haven't trusted Christ trust Christ otherwise you will stand before God and you will give an account for yourself and that will not turn out well for you your guilt will be exposed your lack of righteousness will be exposed God's standard will be there and you will be judged according to that standard and I don't want that for you the penalty of that is judgment, eternal judgment in hell. But Christ himself, having lived a life of obedience and died sacrificially, says anyone who believes in me will have eternal life. And I take that penalty upon myself, he says. That's the first point of application. Trust in Christ and receive peace with God, eternal life where you, when you stand before God, complete His record instead of your own. But secondly, don't live for this life alone. I think of, I think of the, the, this, this couple on all that they went through and, and how they, they, they're so unique and they had so little revelation and they, had, they were at such a unique time and, they, and we see them struggle from, from going from living for this life to beginning to understand about the truth of eternity with God by faith. Don't live for this life alone. You will, you will get lost. You will get sidetracked. You will end up going down the same kind of paths that they went down. I was out running yesterday, and I went to rattlesnake, and I was running rattlesnake, and anyone who's done that or walked around there or, or uh, anything like that, you'll know that there are hundreds of little windy paths that go all over the place, and they seem to go nowhere. Probably if you had a map of the whole thing above, you wouldn't be able to understand where they all go. And so I was out there running, and I, uh, this was a, few, a couple weeks ago, and I was running with my wife, and, and so I was having to wrestle with, I can see the path go this way, And then in 20 yards, it comes back over here. And I'm a practical guy. I'm thinking, hey, why don't I just cut out all that other stuff, right? Well, then I had to do a debate in my mind. Well, I'm here to run the miles. So I'm going to run the miles, right? So I do the zigzag and the the hither and yon and all around and all that kind of stuff because I'm here to run the miles, right? Well, yesterday I was out there running and it was hot. I mean, it was like 70, right? Jeff said winter was something, right? Winter was something, okay? 70 is hot all of a sudden. Four months, 70 will be like cold. I'll be wearing a jacket, right? But I'm out there running, and I, of course I'm, I'm running a circle, and I'm the farthest away. Suddenly I start thinking, I bet I could just cut straight across, and not run the zigzags, because I want to get back, right? Well, that's kind of, I, I tell that story to to point out the fact that you have the options of either running the miles of life and following the well-beaten path wherever it goes. And you don't really know where it goes and it might end up taking you off a cliff. Or you can look and, and see I'm a mile from my truck and it's over there. I'm hot and tired. I just want to get to my truck. You can can live your life just running the miles or you can keep your eye fixed on what the goal is. Sometimes you just need to run the miles when you're running. But in our life, running the miles, following the well-beaten path, it's also called the wide road. The gate is wide. Living, pursuing, pursuing, This life, just like everybody else. And what's the end of that path? Destruction. So let's you and me not live for this life alone. When we ask the question, what do we really want out of life for our children? We know what we want for our children. We want them to know Christ, we want them to walk with Him, we want them to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I think, I think we're more invested. We can see more clearly. It boils it right down to, to the issue when we think about our children. What do we want for them? We want them to have peace with God in Christ. We want them to have their eyes fixed on that eternal inheritance. We want them to understand and know what it means to be reconciled with God in Christ and to walk with Him and to know the joys that come with that even if, catch this, even if it means hardship now. And we want the same for ourselves. So let's don't live for this life alone. So how do we wrap up this this account of the burial of Sarah? I think we wrap it up this way by learning the lesson that the author to the Hebrews learned from them, that our greatest hope is that city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That though we linger here on this earth for some brief time, though it be 120 years, it is a brief time. Like, Like Abraham, we desire a better country, a heavenly one, where we will be united with God ultimately and perfectly, and eternally. Let's not live for this life alone. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we're, I should say often we our faith pales in comparison to, to those we read about in the Bible. We're amazed that, that they could comprehend eternal truths in such lives of difficulty. And we're amazed at, at uh, our own lives and how often we get distracted by what is around us. The, the windy, curvy path that that is well beaten and well worn. and We're tempted to walk in the same ways the world walks in. We're tempted to value the things the world values. We're tempted to be distracted by, to go after the same things that, that all of those who walk the wide path value. But Father, as we've been presented with this, the death of Sarah where opportunity is gone, where there's no more a future decision for her to make. We recognize that for all of us, there will come a time when we will be laid to rest. We recognize there will come a time when those we love will be laid to rest. And our desire for ourselves and our desire for our loved ones and for those around us is that when they are laid to rest, Can be said of them as well that they, they sought a city whose designer and builder is God. They sought a country not to be found in this world, but a heavenly one. And that they found it in Christ. Father, I pray that you would make that true of us and of those we love. And help us to bear that message to this dying world around us, running on the windy path. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's going to be a family come up here to pray with you. If you would like to pray with them, they love to pray with you to hear how they can do so. I want to remind you that we have evening church tonight at 6, and it is in the conference room. Don't let the name conference room put you off. It's large enough to hold everybody who will come. So uh, I would love to see you tonight at 6. Otherwise, God bless you all, and you are dismissed.